0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and every so often I like to get back in front of the microphone and do an interview about a book that comes across my desk that I find particularly interesting. In this case, we'll be talking about Paul Hollander's book, From Benito Mussolini to Hugo Chavez, Intellectuals and a Century of Political Hero Worship. When I saw this book, I knew that I wanted to talk to Paul because I had read his earlier book on a... Kind of similar topic called Political Pilgrims: Western Intellectuals in Search of the Good Society. It came out. I don't know. I think it came out in the night. I know it came out in the nineties. Paul? Do you know when it came out?
1: It came out. First edition was eighty-one.
0: Eighty-one. Really that early? Political
1: Pilgrims. 81, yeah, yes. I
0: didn't know it was that early. I must have read like yeah. the. It's been in multiple editions. It gets reprinted all the time. So it was a book that I had read and I very much admired. And then when I found that Paul had returned to the topic um or a similar topic i guess i would say i was very eager to read the book and to talk to him so the first thing i want to say is paul welcome to the show thank you um could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself
1: okay well as as you already know i my name is paul hollander i i was born in budapest hungary a long time ago and sp- spent my first 24 years in hungary and then i had all my I did high school in Hungary, Gymnasium Academic High School, and then I went to the London School of Economics for my BA and Princeton for my PhD. And I should add that I escaped from Hungary following the defeat of the 1956 revolution.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've discussed this before, but you're part of a very interesting cohort of people that fled yeah. when the Soviets invaded. So, um, Could I ask you—go
1: I mean, a- ahead. Yes, go ahead. ahead. I was
0: going to say, could I ask you, I don't think I've mentioned this to you before. Um, For those of you who don't know, Paul and I have met in person. um, How did that experience affect your work?
1: You mean growing up in Hungary? Well, not just that,
0: leaving after 1956.
1: Yes, well, of course, it has affected my work quite profoundly. And uh, I, I used to say, I didn't mention earlier that between finishing high school and leaving Hungary, I spent two years in a village, in an exile. My family was exiled Mm. because they were classified as politically unreliable or class enemies on account of my maternal grandfather, who was a former capitalist. So I spent two years in this village, mostly with manual labor. And then two years in the army, I was conscripted. And then one more year, as a construction, as a laborer on construction in Budapest.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And so then, then came the revolution. I mean, there was another sort of interlude, six weeks, when I was trying to learn how to become a precision tool maker or mechanic mm-hmm. in a factory rather than just labor on construction. So and then came the revolution, and after it was put down, then I escaped. Mm-hmm. And yes, indeed, all these things quite profoundly affected my worldview and interests and professional interests and I, I used to say that uh, these these varied experiences in Hungary really contributed a great deal to mm-hmm. my having become a sociologist although at time when I mean I am officially a sociologist I, all my degrees are in sociology but uh, actually then I have sort of drifted away from this kind of identity and I could have been also a political scientist or an intellectual historian.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So mm-hmm. basically uh, the, these experiences were quite, quite profound mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. had a great deal of influence on my work and mm-hmm. specific publications.
0: Mm-hmm. It's interesting you mentioned that because you see all those things in this book. It's, it's, it's hard to say. I think if someone read this book I'm not sure they would be 100% sure whether you were a sociologist or a historian or a political science. Right. I think that's a good yes, thing.
1: Well, I, <laughs> yeah, I, suppose so. I suppose that one most obvious Impact of these experiences is this comparative framework. I have been doing basically some variety of comparative sociology. I mean, my first book was a comparative study of Soviet and American society. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I have been making all these comparisons between attitudes towards communist systems on the part of intellectuals. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you mean, I, there has always been a kind of implicit comparison in my mind between Western societies and the type of society where I grew up. And I should also include that uh, these uh, not so pleasant experiences in Mm -hmm. Hungary included the Jewish persecution in 1944,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: when my family and myself, we had a relatively narrow escape. We were Mm -hmm. hiding with fake papers and Mm -hmm. so forth. So so there was a lot of conflict. I have witnessed a lot of political conflict growing up in Hungary. Mm-hmm. Which, which then, which then, of course, totally, then, then my life totally changed after I left Hungary and I became an academic mm-hmm. and leading a peaceful existence. In, first in England, then most of the time in the United States, where I spent most of my adult life.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the Pioneer Valley, right here where we are. <laughs> right. Well, <I> came <laughs> in Northampton. Yeah.
1: I came to the United States in '59 and. First, I went to graduate school for one year at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, and then I transferred to Princeton and uh, got my PhD in 63. And then I had a non-tenured teaching job at Harvard between 63 and 68. And then I came to the University of Massachusetts Mm -hmm. in Amherst, Mm -hmm. where I spent the rest of my teaching career until the year 2000, when I retired from teaching. Mm -hmm. Can, Can I ask you another sort of biographical
0: intellectual history question? And it well, it's, yes. it's basically this, and, and that is. Uh, I was thinking about the late '60s. Were you surprised by the popularity of what we might call—I don't know whether to call it leftism or socialism—in the places where you were studying well, and teaching?
1: Well, I have to admit that this this began, this began when I was an undergraduate at the London School of Economics, mm-hmm. and uh, there was also a fair amount of leftism there, and uh, I, I was sort of irritated by it, and and I. My I, my basic attitude was that these people or a many of them had absolutely no idea what political systems which claimed to be leftist turned out to be. You know, mm-hmm. in Eastern Europe, the one-party states supposedly socialist. Uh, so I mean, yes, I I had a problem with the, with Western leftism. Except, of course, there have also been plenty of Western leftists, both in Western Europe and the United States, who actually knew about the. Soviet-dominated countries, or later in the of the Third World countries of similar persuasion, you know the more revolutionary systems like Cuba or China in the beginning under mm-hmm. Mao, and whether at the same time anti-communist, There have also been such leftists. Mm-hmm. But I would say that the majority of the leftists I encountered either were totally ignorant and uninterested in existing existing socialist states, or which call themselves socialists, or call themselves marxist leninists or were sympathetic towards them. So uh, that has been a, a kind of an inspiration in my work, I have to admit, to try to tell something to Western leaders about the nature of these political systems. Mm-hmm. And you may very well think that, yeah, of, of course, these... Political systems system didn't live up to their Marxist heritage or Marxist inspiration. Yes, sure, you can say that.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But
1: I mean, I, my view was always that, you know, there are some people who said that, well, the Soviet Union had absolutely nothing to do with Marxism. And other people would say that, yes, it was completely, uh, we can blame Marx for the type of political system like the Soviet Union or China under Mao. I would say that this system had something to do with Marxism mm-hmm. and we can dispute how much, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. obviously there was some connection. Mm-hmm. But no, you, can, you cannot blame Marx for the gulag, <laughs> no. or the collectivization of agriculture in Soviet society or the Cultural Revolution in China.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I see just what you mean. So could you tell us why you wrote this most recent book, and let me say the title again, from Benito Mussolini to Hugo Chavez, Intellectuals and a Century of Political Hero Worship.
1: Yeah, well, well uh, there two, are two explanations. One is sort of the more immediate explanation was that I was asked a few years ago to contribute to a volume which was to be edited by Vladimir Tismanian, a political scientist uh, at the University of Maryland, about intellectuals, about totalitarianism, something about totalitarianism, or maybe intellectuals. No, just about totalitarianism. And uh, and I guess I, I am not sure what the subtitle was going to be. But anyway, he asked me to contribute to this volume. So I proposed that I will write something. I guess it was about intellectuals and totalitarianism. And I proposed that I we write something about intellectuals and... Uh, people who were the major inspiration or uh, leaders of various totalitarian countries. I mean, political hero worship, but intellectual. So that was the most immediate inspiration to write something for this volume. And then as time went by, and I actually completed this, it's a chapter, it was a chapter, I don't know, maybe 50 typewritten pages or manuscript pages. And then I thought, well, maybe this topic could be expanded into a book. And now comes a broader explanation that I have this long-standing interest in communist systems and other, not just communist systems, but also various repressive societies and also about uh, this long-standing interest in the perception of these societies by Western intellectuals and that book which was mentioned earlier by Marshall, Political Pilgrims, where that had to do with the perception of communist systems by intellectuals or a portion of intellectuals. This is a debatable topic, you know, what proportion of Western intellectuals sympathize with these systems, and uh, it's very difficult to quantify because there are no surveys, opinion surveys directed at intellectuals as such. So, I have this long-standing interest in how intellectuals related to these political systems, or or more generally in, uh, interest in intellectuals and politics
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, mm-hmm. then of course uh, I didn't want to you know I wanted to do something different than I in political pilgrims and political pilgrims was concerned with the intellectuals attitude towards communist systems mm-hmm. or Soviet type communist system not communist you know in the sense of uh, the ideal society which, which was yet to be created so uh, then I thought that it would be interesting to look at the attitude of intellectuals toward other unsavory political systems, such as fascist Italy or Nazi Germany, and then a few others from more recent times, like North Korea or Syria or Iraq under Saddam Hussein
2: mm-hmm.
1: or uh, Panama under Torrijos. so a few others, and Nicaragua. No, Nicaragua was on the left. and uh, Chavez, uh, well, that was sort of on the left, too. So anyway, I wanted to have a broader look of the intellectuals' political attitudes towards, you would say, these all have been to different to various degrees, authoritarian or repressive societies. <clears throat> and then the second interest was to focus on the leaders. And I have also always been interested in and you, you might say morbidly fascinated by <laughs> the so-called cult of personality,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which, which was, of course, the term originated with Khrushchev, and it was basically an understatement applied to the rule of Stalin. He called it the period of the cult of personality, where, of course, there was much more to this than just a cult of personality. Anyway, the cults were, were to a large degree created by the machinery of propaganda. But some of these leaders I wrote about, such as Mussolini and Hitler and Castro, were genuinely popular, at least earlier in their careers. And they were charismatic and very Mm -hmm. good speakers, and they made a huge emotional impact on their audiences. Mm -hmm. So, and then I I have also been interested, it is a kind of a side interest or subsidiary interest in the spiritual, what, what might be called the spiritual problems of modernity. And that is, of course, the difficulty people have in in living in highly secularized societies uh, where where communities have been weakened and there is a great deal of social isolation and mm-hmm. uh, you know, insufficient social solidarity or com- sense of community. And of course, uh, the lack of uh, serious religious commitments. I don't think that people say that the United States is a deeply religious country, but in some ways it is, but I feel, I don't think that, and I think this was something I I felt from the beginning when I came to this country almost 60 years ago, that this American religiosity is is more a social than a truly spiritual phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So I have been interested in these related topics. And then another topic, I mentioned this in the preface of the book that, I have always been interested in the varieties of the gap or the contrast between illusion and reality, or appearance and reality, or theory and practice, or deception and self-deception, all these things. And and more institutionally speaking, I have been interested in political propaganda or commercial advertising. So all Mm -hmm. these things hang together.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, they do, and they, they all are. And
1: and, uh, and I could incorporate it into this book, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. into this recent book.
0: Well, you see all these strands in this book. So let, let's begin with the material itself. And one of the parts that I, I most enjoyed about the book was uh, your uh, trying to grapple with how to define what an intellectual is in the Western context. Could you talk a little bit about that? What is an intellectual in the Western context? And am well, I one? I mean, <laughs>
1: of course. Yeah. Well, you see. I, I, of course, when I first wrote about intellectuals was in the Political Pilgrim book. Mm-hmm. And, then, 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 and in that book, I surveyed a good good chunk of the literature on who intellectuals are and how, how you can define them. And uh, I concluded, uh, in light of the political behavior or political beliefs of intellectuals, I came to the conclusion that many of the conventional Definitions or beliefs about intellectuals are incorrect. That, for example, that intellectuals are invariably critical, where they are not. You know, and uh, intellectuals can also be true believers. So uh, I, I guess basically I was thinking about intellectuals, not, not trying to define them occupationally. Though so most of them these days are academics. You know, mm-hmm. are in, in departments of uh, humanities and social sciences. But basically, I would say that two, two, two criteria or attributes, I think, are key to defining intellectuals and interest in ideas. But well, that sounds pretty general. But they are not specialists. They're you know, a, a botanist or an entomolo- entomologist or astronomer and not as an intellectual, only because he or she is highly educated. So they are generalists. They're generally interested in ideas. And also a social critical propensity.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think these are the two most important things. And uh, or perhaps also you might add an interest in this question of the difference between appearance and reality. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think and that that is very closely linked to the social critical propensity because you know most social critical writings of intellectuals sooner or later will conclude in exposing some discrepancy between. Uh, ideas and realities, you know, like the United States, you know, the, the paying lip service to equality, as in the Constitution, and then, of course, the realities of, of inequality. And, of course, this, this is endless the discrepancies between theories and practices or, or, or values people ascribe to and their actual behavior. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I would say these are then the major attributes of intellectuals, interest in ideas. And, uh, oh, I would also say a certain kind of idealism, high expectations. I think intellectuals have high expectations as to the kind of society they would like to live in. And of course, that's what makes them critical, that's what makes them social critics.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: mm-hmm. uh, Nevertheless, of course, as I said in the the concluding chapter of this latest book, you know, intellectuals are very different and there have been tons of intellectuals who have never been enamored with the Soviet Union or Castro's Cuba or Mao's China and so forth. So uh, intellectuals vary a great deal, although I would say that most of the notable or prominent intellectuals have been or are critical of their own society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think another thing about Western intellectuals that they don't like capitalism.
0: Yes, that seems to be clear. So but,
1: very important
0: to one of the things I liked about your definition was that it was in a certain sense, um, what shall we say, uh, tendency or ideologically neutral. So. It's as easy to be an intellectual, I don't know if it's as easy, but there are intellectuals on the right as well as the left. I, the thing I, I fear is is that many, for many Americans, the notion of intellectual is permanently cemented with the idea of being a leftist. Yes. But that isn't yes. true yes. historically at all.
1: Yes, but, but of course, many in, in our times, or in the much of the 20th century, many intellectuals were on the left, or many prominent intellectuals were on the left, and there were, of course, many others who were. Critical of them, it's mm-hmm. true, but it's difficult to quantify.
0: Yeah, well, one of the but people of course, that you you bring up in the book, and I, I think is a great example, is Joseph Goebbels, who was, uh, I guess we would nice. say, on the right way. I don't, you know, again, what's Nazism, I don't know, but he was an intellectual Yes, by almost any measure. He
1: yeah, He was interested in ideas, he was well-educated, and of course there is this other notion, which he shared with Lenin, that ideas are weapons or can mm-hmm. be weapons
2: mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. can
1: be weaponized as they say these days that i many things are weaponized in, in american political discourse too
2: mm-hmm. so
1: i think yes but uh, this is somehow many intellectuals don't like to think of Goebbels as an intellectual <laughs> yeah, because have... of this kind of because of his political uh, Role
0: and, yes, and right. commitment, yeah, yeah, I but know. yes,
1: in terms of many definitions, he was an intellectual. Sure, sure. And um, could you tell us
0: a little bit? And this is sort of to jump ahead; we haven't gone through the material itself—that so is, the actual empirical examples. But is there something? What is it about intellectuals that are uh, drawn to at least create or think of political leaders on whichever side of the aisle as heroes? Is there some um, affinity I between think the political?
1: Them? Yes, yes, I think that. that I can answer this, and I I think I did some, this was to some extent in the book, that intellectuals admired the political leaders who uh, met the criteria of the philosopher king, Mm -hmm. that is to say, who had power and interest in ideas and supposedly tried to apply their ideas and ideas to shaping society and even transforming for the better human beings and human nature. So these are that I think intellectuals, or well, many intellectuals, have this uh, great apprehension about not being active or actors, that they, it's all talk and no action. I think this is a kind of apprehension or fear which haunts many intellectuals, that they are just talkers, and what they are doing doesn't really make much difference. And then you get these people who, you know, who seem to have made a huge amount of difference, and initially it looked like for the better. And they, these major leaders I discussed in the book, they all thought of themselves as, uh, you know, whether or not they used the right term, philosopher kings are, and great theorists or ideologues. Mm-hmm. I think that is very important for their sense of identity. You know, Hitler began his life writing his Mein Kampf mm-hmm. when he was already when he was in prison.
2: Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so
1: all, all of these people are there to it in this book, mm-hmm. did mm-hmm. a great deal of writing.
0: And yeah, they no, they
1: did. That, it, yeah. But what they wrote was very important, and they, and and some of them, to different degrees, you know, they also thought of this, themselves as critics of art and would advise writers. This was more true of the communist, uh, <laughs> of the communist side of the political spectrum, you know, advising the artists or or repressing them from expressing themselves in mm-hmm. incorrect ways. I think. Well, Hitler also early in his career, I remember, he went to this exhibit. In in Munich, Germany, where they had an exhibit on something like decadent art or mm-hmm. decrepit art or something like this, where they brought together paintings which Hitler considered deplorable mm-hmm. from the point of view of you know a Nazi outlook on the world. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So again, I think that's that's an important point: this relationship between ideas and beliefs and behavior. I think that's what attracts intellectuals. And of course, being a revolutionary, you know, uh, like Castro, was extremely attractive. He was a real doer, and besides, you know, he and like Stalin and the rest of them, they seemed to be experts on everything.
2: All mm-hmm. so
1: they could advise intellectuals about everything, and mm-hmm. uh, probably Mao and Stalin were the most extreme cases of mm-hmm. this. Of this kind of Renaissance man. That's another way you could define them: Renaissance mm-hmm. man. Mm-hmm.
0: So. Mm-hmm. Well, well, let's begin at the beginning of your book, and I, I think that for many, uh, well, perhaps not our listeners because they're extraordinarily well read and well educated, but for many Americans at least, the idea that uh, Mussolini and the early fascists—I guess, including Hitler—had uh, what were essentially cheerleaders and fans in the West would be astounding. But there, there were such people, and you have
1: found yes, them. Can there you, were many. Yes, yes could you I talk about that- them? Yes, I talked about them, and uh, actually, I didn't know this before, uh, until I did my research, I didn't know that that, that that Mussolini and Hitler also had considerable support from intellectuals. Mind you, I think a lot of this support came from the intellectuals in their own countries. Yes. A great deal. And also another important qualification is that this admiration of Hitler and Mussolini was not very durable.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, whereas the admiration of the Intellect of the communist leaders like Stalin and Mao and Castro that has been much more durable mm-hmm. and and, uh, and, it, and it persists in some ways it mm-hmm. still persists certainly Castro um, so uh,
0: could you introduce us to a few of the people that intellectuals that were uh, supporters I guess I would say of Mussolini and Hitler
1: well I didn't actually interview many people I remember. One name, one person comes into mind, somebody in Hungary and actually that person I interviewed for another project when I wrote earlier a book about the collapse of the Soviet system Mm -hmm. and and also in connection with that, the collapse of the other systems which the Soviet Union kept alive, so to speak, you know, the Eastern European countries like Mm -hmm. Hungary and the rest of them. And then I interviewed a person in Hungary who was a former a uh, high-ranking Hungarian KGB official. And his father, Farkas, maybe you heard this mm-hmm. this. He Farkas was the Minister of Defense, and his son, Vladimir Farkas, as I said, he worked for the Hungarian K- KGB. And I had numerous conversations with him. Well, he sort of, he repented, mm-hmm. and he wrote a book which is only published in Hungarian, you know, which which describes his, uh, his uh, disillusionment with the system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so uh, when mm -hmm. you are asking about interviews well no I meant what I meant was uh, um... well you know I can think of an an American one of the leaders of the American Communist Party and his name I'll ask you know of the old old American Communist Party like
0: Gus Hall Uh, Abtaker
1: Abtaker, yeah
0: Abtaker Abtaker. I
1: I, I interviewed him I had a long conversation with him I, I think that was for a book I wrote about Disillusionment with communism, the mm-hmm. end of commitment,
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because
1: he, he sort of distanced himself to some degree from Soviet communism late in life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So it's not nope. someone else. Yeah, what, what I what I tried to uh,
0: say was, can you tell us about some of the people who we might have heard of or maybe hadn't heard of who were intellectual supporters of a Mussolini and Hitler?
1: Well, I think the most famous uh, intellectual supporter of Hitler was Heidegger hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I am not a student of Heidegger and I I, I have read a fair amount of him in secondary sources and I refer to them in this book. Well, Heidegger, uh, I think Heidegger's uh, attraction to Nazism was very explicitly connected to his reversion of modernity. hmm. He, he said so. I mean, this is actually interesting because. Uh, Many intellectuals didn't make this quite clear that they were attracted to these communist systems, whether it was communism, communist, or Nazi or fascist, because they thought that these systems somehow uh, succeeded in the, in you know ending alienation and overcoming the difficulties modernity created in the lives of people, and uh, perhaps this was this has some truth to it in the beginning, as far as Nazi Germany and fascist Italy were concerned that, you know, they created this short-lived sense of community. Mm-hmm. And uh, that appealed to intellectuals, as Heidegger was one of these people. Another interesting thing about Heidegger, that he explicitly praised the system which the Nazis introduced, you know, to, between work, that was also true of communist system that they would involve intellectuals or future intellectuals college students in manual labor
2: mm-hmm. and uh,
1: heidegger so that was that was one of the positive features of nazi germany that you know university students would participate in their holidays or vacations in manual labor and they, of course they have been doing this in communist systems too mm-hmm. especially in Cuba and china less so in the soviet union and there was some of this in hungary when i was growing up you know i remember we went to do some projects, but it was not very prolonged or important. But, I mean, that's an interesting, interesting commonality among these uh, leaders that they believed that somehow manual labor had a redeeming aspect, mm-hmm. that both the Nazis and communist leaders had this belief. Now, how, how seriously they took it, I really don't know, but they certainly involved a large part of the population. You know, in Cuba, people, office workers, going to cut sugar cane. And of course, in China, during the Cultural Revolution, they have moved millions of people uh, who were were white collar workers into the countryside. And they were supposedly learned from the peasants through manual labor. Mm -hmm. So again, I suppose you could say this is a kind of implicit rejection of modernity, Mm -hmm. that manual labor is is a good thing. And and it clears your mind somehow. Mm
0: -hmm. It it seems to me that this, Intellectual rejection of modernity, as you put it, is a, a kind of fundamental and recurrent theme in hero worship, as you it, recall it. It is. Um, I, yeah. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about it? Because, I mean, I think it yeah. also, you know, it does really, it, it does. Well, one of the things that comes out in the book is the people that do uh, glom on to these or go in support of these uh Political leaders—they they all have very strong critiques of their own societies, and and to the extent that many of them are bizarre, yeah. <laughs> they're bizarre if you ask me. But right. they, they are bizarre. I, I the, yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, of course, this also helps to explain the Trump phenomenon. Yeah. Go ahead. And I said I said something about it in the preface to the book. Well, I think this is this is as I, as I, again I, I this is a kind of quasi-religious impulse, you know. It's it's a way to to to. Overcome meaninglessness and, and the weak or, or declining or non-existent social solidarity. Mm-hmm. I think I think it is a kind of meaning-seeking impulse. Uh, and these these people who were admired, they were sort of quasi divine entities. Mm-hmm. And uh, now again, here one may have to di- distinguish perhaps between the attitudes of intellectuals and regular people. I remember you know, reading that in China, uh, the, the workers and the peasants before starting to work daily would would stand in front of pictures, paintings or pictures of Mao as if they were praying to him
2: mm-hmm. and tell him
1: what they were going to do during the day or what they have accomplished during the day, this kind of thing. Very, very, almost overtly religious attitudes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, whether or not... Uh, to what extent this extent to intellectual, but they, they wouldn't go to such extremes. But I think intellectuals uh, had high hopes about these leaders that they will make uh, the society they live in more more meaningful. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially, I think you, another point I should have made uh, perhaps earlier, that a lot of inter- Western intellectuals or maybe intellectuals everywhere have some identity problems because intellectuals, you know, socially, Speaking is a kind of unclear category. Are they middle class, working class, upper class, where well, they can be different things in mm-hmm. addition to being intellectuals? So many intellectuals felt that in, in communist systems or in Nazi Germany or fascist Italy, intellectuals had a well-defined, desirable, beneficial social role. Mm-hmm. No more identity problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So I
1: think that obviously was very appealing.
0: Well, then let's move on a little bit past uh, fascists and go on to uh, what I think is much richer territory for hero worship among intellectuals west, and that is uh, of uh, of Stalin and um, the and Soviet satellites generally. Can you talk a little bit about the way in which Western intellectuals came to worship Stalin, I guess, yes. and yeah.
1: I mean, this worship, had, had the basic uh, source or foundation of this worship was that the Soviet system, or, or the Chinese system, or Cuba under Castro, the systems themselves were completely identified with the leader. So it, it, it's difficult to think of the systems without the leaders. And the leaders struck, you know, it's difficult to say what came first. Well, obviously, what came first was rejection of their own society. And then and the next thing was, where, where, where is some society which doesn't have all the blemishes and warts and flaws or injustices of our own society? And then, um, you know, this was obviously determined by historical events because uh, the Soviet Union was popular at the time when Western societies in the late 20s and early 30s had these serious economic problems, and the Soviet Union didn't seem to have any of those problems. In addition to these other spiritual benefits. Mm-hmm. Now, in the, in the sixties, uh, by the sixties, Western intellectuals learned something about the Soviet system that was disillusioning since even one of the top leaders, Khrushchev, uh, denounced Stalin and then uh, there was this, uh, that was difficult to dismiss the kind of things Khrushchev said about the system under Stalin. So then, 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 then you have people like Castro and Mao who were these kind of powering leaders. Again, you know, they, they were also thinkers and philosophers. So uh, now what was the original question again? Why they admire the leaders? Yeah. Well, because it, it, it seemed to the intellectuals that these leaders were so brilliant thinkers and doers that they created this... Uh, superior social system, which had no unemployment, and uh, and especially permeated by a sense of solidarity and community, mm-hmm. and no, no more social isolation, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, d- different degrees of social equality. I mean, in China, obviously, it was easier to think that there was greater social equality than in the Soviet Union, and many intellectuals even Perceived the cultural revolution as a kind of a new a major step to to equalize society mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and and also to to sort of there was this other idea which many instant that goes back to Marx of course that somehow you know human beings become more whole if the division of labor is reduced or abolished
2: mm-hmm. It was an idea
1: marx had you know a very modern notion about wholeness well you know, how could, how could you have modern society without division of labor? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you could say that was another critique of modern society, which we encounter many times in this country too, you know. It, it's a very paradoxical thing because people want expert advice on everything.
2: <laughs> but at the
1: same time, you know, experts are also held in some, are, are viewed with skepticism mm-hmm. and people want some, some fundamental truth.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I remember, you see, one of the most important things, I think, in, in in this book, I mentioned that. What, what, for example, impressed Sartre about uh, Che Guevara? He said he was the the most whole human being, and uh, the same, similar things were said about Che Guevara by I. F. Stone. Mm-hmm. You know, what again? What, um, what? remarkable that these two people who thought of themselves as hard-nosed social critics, and, and then these, then they were genuflecting. Uh, in front of these kinds of uh, repressive political figures. I mean, it's remarkable how intellectuals can can uh, distance themselves from their own social-critical impulses
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and
1: give it to the religious impulses mm-hmm. or quasi-religious impulses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, you know, that, and, and also, as I said, the Renaissance man image, you know, with Mao, who, would, you know, remember he was a great swimmer, supposedly. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And actually, Hitler wasn't so much involved with physical activities. (laughs) Castro was, again, he had the physical aspect, you know, tall and energetic and so on. Mm -hmm. So they they varied a great deal.
0: mm -hmm. One of the things that Uh, I found really surprising in the book that I didn't know, I knew quite a bit about the Soviet context because I had been trained as a Russian historian, um, but I didn't realize that the kind of hero worship of... Uh, Mao was so prominent in the West, even after 1953. Yes. Uh, right. So could you but talk a little you, bit about be, that?
1: Yes, because you see, here is another aspect of the why intellectuals shifted from the admiration of the Soviet system to the admiration of China under Mao and Cuba under Castro and North Vietnam to a lesser extent, mm-hmm. or Nicaragua to some extent too. Well, because, you see, it seemed to these intellectuals that the Soviet system, there was the famous convergent theory, that insofar the <laughs> intellectuals became more critical of the Soviet system. It was because it was also a modern industrial society like the United States. Yeah. But speak China... No, I, I, and...
0: I was going to say, I remember this uh, convergence very well, and, and I was, this is was when I sort of first began my training, and I remember reading <laughs> things by... I think it was Eric Hobsbawm was one of them, but especially I think maybe Perry Anderson was another, and yeah, I don't remember all of them who were. Uh, yeah. Now
1: that you mentioned Hobsbawm, I cannot resist to, to, to mention a, a statement I quoted in the beginning, which which is a reflection, a very good reflection of the attitude of intellectuals. We are we are probing here. And that was that, uh, And then we, then we go back to why Castro and Mao were especially popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was sometimes in the 90s that uh, Hobson was interviewed and the interviewer asked him, in Britain of course, that if he had known in the 1930s about the purges and the show trials in the Soviet Union, which were going on, if he had known in the 90s, would he still have supported the Soviet system? And... And that after some hesitation, Holmström said, yes, he would have done so because the Soviet system was the only one, and I am not paraphrasing, I don't remember mm-hmm. the exact words, which which offered some hope mm-hmm. about the future. Yeah, right. See? Right. The good intentions, this is something I emphasize in this book, that people admired these dictators because what they perceived as the good intentions they had about improving their societies and human nature. Yeah, now, yeah. I think that what people liked about China and Cuba that they were also more traditional societies and more underdeveloped societies, mm-hmm. and that some of these uh, traditional attitudes, uh, even North Korea, I, there is there is one, I know of one of this kind of uh, very very favourable. Book about North Korea by this um, historian from Chicago, Cummings, I think his name. Mm-hmm. Again, he, he liked the fact that you know old ladies were sweeping the street, <laughs> you know, just, as, just as in traditional society. How wonderful that old people have a funks.
0: I remember. I remember. It's funny you mentioned that because I remember the first time I saw that in in the Soviet Union. And I, I pretty yeah. much couldn't believe it. And I was like, why is grandma sweeping
1: this street?" Yeah. And you know, also, I remember <laughs> many of the people who went to the Soviet Union in the 30s and went to the villages. And uh, now now you see names names are fading. Um, there were several people who were sort of serial pilgrims that first went to the Soviet system, then they became disillusioned with it, then they went to China or Cuba. Uh And they were sort of looking for the same thing, authenticity. I think that's another important idea, because traditional societies are more authentic.
2: Uh
1: Modern societies are not. That's that's sort of the basic idea. And there there is some truth to it, whatever we mean exactly by authenticity, well, that's another big issue. But what people liked about China and Cuba, it's all this manual labor, you know, and, and <laughs> things were not yet mass-produced. And, and, and there was a sense of community in the villages,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and people knew each other.
2: Yeah.
1: Some of these communist systems somehow were perceived or misperceived as having the attributes of traditional society. And to some degree, they did have it, yeah. you know, and mm-hmm. there was some truth to that. Yeah. And they have this enormous population of peasants both the Soviet Union and China. Uh-huh. And of course, the, not that the regimes themselves like the peasants, because of course, contempt of the peasants goes back to Marx.
2: Yeah. And
1: yeah. the peasants were mistreated as a, as a group. Sure. I mean, both the Soviet Union and China, perhaps more, hard to say in which country more so. Probably, maybe the Soviet Union.
0: Yeah, but I, I have to say that convergence theory has to be one of the most bizarre episodes in all of intellectual history. I remember reading an article, I think it was by E.P. Thompson, an yeah, historian yeah, who sure. I quite admired. And he said, yeah, and yeah. I had just got back from the Soviet Union, and he said the most bizarre things about it.
1: Right. And, and, and and Galbraith, Galbraith was a great believer yeah, uh, in convergence <laughs> theory, too.
2: Yeah. I, well,
1: I think what was good about, what appealed to the intellectuals about this convergence theory, that that gave them an opportunity to reject sort of modernity, yeah. both versions, both mm-hmm. the capitalist and the communist versions of modernity. And also that allowed them to be critics of both types of societies, mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I suppose. Yeah. And, and, and to see I hope in, in, the in more Mao, optimistic yeah. version. In the more optimistic version, it allowed them to, to think that the Soviet system will become more humane and democratic as it becomes more modern and more mm-hmm. industrial.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, one is, of the, I was going to say, one of the things that I was very much surprised to read in your book. I did not know this at all. When I went to graduate school, everybody read a lot of Michel Foucault. Um, the, the, uh, we were forced to do it, I have to confess. And uh, I, I never really understood why, but uh, in any event, you talk to, to, at some length about uh, Michel Foucault's adoration of revolutionary Iran. Could you talk right. a little bit about that? Because I don't think this episode
1: well, is widely he, known. He introduced, he introduced this <laughs> this term, which I should have used more, that what he liked in Iran was spiritual politics mm-hmm. see this, this very neatly captures this ideal he was also after you know this kind of society was somehow permeated by religious feelings again getting away from modernity and and he was also of course profoundly ignorant of the nature of that society just like the rest of them but he was a
0: pilgrim he visited
1: absolutely and so, huh? but, you know, boy, that this you know i mean this is an amazing thing you can't go to places that learn nothing about them possible.
2: <laughs> and especially if
1: you have a very efficient uh uh conducted tourism and and you have your your predisposition you know to find good things but sometimes it doesn't work you know andre jeed was disillusioned despite yeah. the conducted tour and and a few other people were too but uh, Most people, given predisposition and being screened away from many of the unappealing aspects of the society during their visits, well, sure, you you come away with very positive impressions.
0: Yeah, but Foucault, who was gay, and openly so, at least I think he was, Foucault... yeah. he goes to Iran where there are no homosexuals,
1: yes. <laughs> right? and well, he get, probably didn't know. Yeah, I mean... I mean it, in the same way, you know, people who went to China, they didn't know that they, right. they were shooting homosexuals. Yes,
0: right. I, I was like, wow. That is really. Right. I did not know that at all about Foucault's life. I did not know that. But
1: you see, these are, again, talking about moral equivalence, I was thinking of another quote. I, I quoted this, I don't know in which book, that some American feminist said that, well, why are... Why are Americans or, or some American pundits critical of the women in the Muslim societies wearing the burqa? Mm-hmm. In America, they are forced to wear brass. <laughs> it it yeah. is the moral equivalent, brass yeah. versus burqa.
0: Uh-huh. And, and, or,
1: or, you know, when somebody said that we had the Hollywood purges and the Russians had yes, their own purges, you right. know? yes, It's yeah. yeah, it's,
0: right. it's amazing. It's yeah. just amazing.
1: Yeah. You know, the point being that People believe what they want to believe.
0: Sure, sure. And, and this
1: is the amazing thing. And again, this is this is demonstrated by the Trump phenomenon.
0: Yeah, a lot
1: of people believe that he is telling like it is.
0: Yeah. So what I wanted to ta- I wanted to ask you about that. I would be remiss not to uh, to ask you about your analysis of the Trump phenomenon. Could you please explain that to us?
1: Well, first of all, I, I have to say, as I have wrote this somewhere, that. It almost makes me anti-American. <laughs> because, I hope not, but go ahead <laughs> yes. because I mean, I, I just think <laughs> it's it disgraceful. yes, you can explain it, yes, you can explain it just as you can explain why you know people admired Hitler for a while, although Trump is not a Hitler or a Mussolini. A Mussolini is a bit closer. but I mean, it's basically a case of wishful thinking. And and we have here somebody who succeeded at identifying himself as a champion of the underdog.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, and it's a remarkable feat because, of course, he's he's a billionaire, and and uh, and, and, uh, and 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 uh, you could say that he this you could say that he he goes a long way to discredit capitalism, <laughs>
2: and, and sort of
1: symbolizes everything that's wrong with capitalism, and yet. Uh, he, he made this favorable impression on millions of people.
2: Uh-huh. I mean,
1: it, it, it's, and I, I think it says, as, as I, I have a little piece I wrote about Trump for the an online publication of the American interest, which, which I gave it the title, The Trump, Human Nature, and the Craving for Respect. Mm-hmm. And That's- I think that, I mean, this is difficult to prove or document, but I think that people who, Support or attracted to Trump have been not so much because they lost their job but because their trump somehow makes them feel better about themselves mm-hmm. and their social status mm-hmm. and uh and because because you know this is this is the latest you could say this is the latest victim category the white males mm-hmm. and somehow white and not not so well educated males mm-hmm. who who can can fear this kind of righteous victim. We had this competition in American society for some time for the position of the righteous victim, and Mm -hmm. this this is the latest entry Mm -hmm. in the competition, and Mm -hmm. I think Trump has uh, very cleverly exploited these positions Mm -hmm. that people want to think Mm -hmm. of themselves. as. It doesn't occupy the moral high ground as as the righteous victim. Mm -hmm.
0: So... uh, I was going to say, just to play devil's advocate for a second, he didn't get very much support among intellectuals. I can, I can no, hardly think
1: it of any. Not. That's, no, that is that's absolutely true, and I I made that point in, yeah, in the two pieces I wrote about him. Mm-hmm. No, he didn't have much support. Although now now there, I mean, there have been some some small groups, but not not as it's not a widespread phenomenon. No. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, so I mean he he appears to the most aggrieved segments of the population and uh, it, it's really it's really an amazing phenomenon and i mean that people for example believe that he's going to get their jobs back mm-hmm. and uh, i suppose they will keep thinking even when this doesn't happen
2: and maybe <laughs> yeah. they, will
1: find, they will maybe find some other political entity to blame for the jobs not coming back. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. But
1: I mean, again, I, I consider this as a kind of amazing aspect of human irrationality and and, uh, and the, the wish to believe. And uh, uh-huh. he met this require at least in the short run. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know what will happen when people, if people lose, the people who voted for him start losing their medical benefits.
2: Mm-hmm. and mm-hmm.
1: Will it be possible to blame it on the Democrats or Obama or I don't know whom? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, maybe there's, there's a limit to which human beings can delude themselves.
0: I'm sure, well, I hope there is. <laughs> I do wonder, though, that what role of sort of, but you, you mentioned this, but uh, resentment plays in uh, the, whatever portion of the electorate appreciates um, um, Donald Trump, because I, I think that there is a strong element of resentment. I, I think a lot of people voted against not just Hillary right. Clinton, but what Hillary Clinton right. stood for.
1: Actually, uh, I, I met some people, some well-educated people who said they just couldn't bring themselves to vote for Hillary. Yeah, yeah. That kind of.
0: Because it, do, it does make the system look somewhat rigged when the uh, wife of the king becomes queen. Yes. You see, that, that doesn't and of look course right.
1: She, I, I did vote for her, but I, I never particularly felt attracted to her, and I always felt that she had a kind of, she, she had an inauthentic streak mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm well and similarly you know what happened I, I would just b- to take us all back to the the moment at which there, there was going to be a third Bush in the White House that's Jeb Bush who was probably the most qualified of all of them right he lost in the first moment <laughs> right. so people it's were basically. not gonna have any dynasties on either side Yeah,
1: that was part of it yeah
0: yeah they were not interested at all in what I guess we might call the East Coast or West Coast establishment right. And, and, and I
1: mean, you know, what's also interesting that Trump, because he, he is quite inarticulate,
0: uh-huh. but
1: I mean, his inarticulateness coming apparently came across for many in his audiences as, as authenticity, you know, inarticulate.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's right. His his way of speaking is not in, he does not speak in political ease um, as, uh, as 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 other people do. He, he's un, yeah. he, he appears to be unguarded in his speech. Whether he is or not, I don't know. But right. he, yeah. he does appear to shoot from the hip. He yeah. says things that... I mean, I remember yeah. very well when, when he... The, the very first moment when I realized that there was something... About him that might survive was he made a cra- essentially a joke about John McCain. And America's not really big on heroes, but if there is one, it's him.
1: <laughs> and and I right. oh, yeah. made a well, joke
0: about him and nothing happened.
1: <laughs> right. That, that was really quite compelling.
0: That's remarkable. Yeah, it was terrible. It was a terrible thing to say. But uh, but nothing happened. Nothing. Right. <laughs> I had to say, that, it. it really took me about
1: Maybe you could also say that he captures some kind of. Free-floating, aggressive impulses. It
0: could be, yeah. No, that's right. Hero.
1: That really could he's be certainly very aggressive and authoritarian. No, he's not and about, so.
0: he's not about decorum. So, so let me ask you this: What is the, um, what does the future hold for intellectual hero worship? Are there any heroes on the horizon? Hugo Chavez is gone. Uh, is there yes, I
1: think he was the last major figure. Uh huh. I mean, I, 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 I always feel completely paralyzed. About predicting anything. Sure, of course. And, I mean, I didn't think the Soviet system will collapse, for example.
0: No, I didn't either.
1: Uh, so I don't know if I. There is nothing obvious on the horizon, certainly. But the fact that Trump became a kind of an intellectual and a hero worship, although a, a hero for not for intellectuals, but perhaps more for ordinary people, that suggests that, of course, that the phenomenon has, has a great potential to. Uh-huh. To reappear or repeat itself uh-huh,
2: uh-huh, uh-huh. and
1: uh, it it would be very difficult to think you know where the next such figure would come from
0: yeah yeah well I mean to be fair I mean many of the people that intellectuals have admired very much have turned out to be very good people and and so they're not always wrong um
1: right they, right yeah. right right that's very true
0: yeah that's I'm thinking about like for example many of my friends really like the current Trudeau that is the Prime Minister of Canada, I don't know. they like Canada too, but... Um, you mean the
1: current president? Yes, are, the current
0: uh, president. I can't remember his first name for whatever reason. I'm, yeah.
1: uh, you uh, know, so. his father was a bit of a political pilgrim too. Yes, I, I did know that, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. yes. Um, yeah, so he's a nice, n- nice young man. He so seems, seems like it, yeah.
0: And a lot of people yeah. admire him very much, and they, like, yeah. they admire Angela Merkel. And I don't know that yeah. I don't know that Vladimir Putin has any great admirers in the West. But
1: well, uh, I, I have a little bit about him in the book. There were a, there are a handful of American intellectuals who thought well of him. Uh
0: huh. Well, I,
1: towards the end of the book, I have a little yeah, section on Putin. it's tough them. to
0: make, but you yeah. know, it's it's a, a that, that's not really our game to predict.
1: So no. <laughs> no, I wish I wish we we had some powerful. The theories that are disposal yeah, to no, I to but i i mean I would say that certainly the, the there is no reason to believe that this phenomenon will not repeat itself i think that's right yeah i
0: mean i i, I mean just in the name of uh, sort of empirical humility i i think that we can say that we don't know what's going to happen i mean i Think that, I mean,
1: and it meets it meets a genuine human yeah, need. Yeah,
0: it does. It absolutely does. So, There's no so, question about just
1: it. Just like just like religion meets a human need. So.
0: Yeah, no, it, ab- it, it absolutely does. I mean, you know, I, I I can I remember sometimes in my own life when I got a little bit too enthused about something, and you know, even when I was presented with contrary uh, evidence, I wasn't willing to put it away. So this
1: this and does. I, this this brings to my mind one more uh, point which Hobsbawm made in his autobiography. I don't know if I quoted this in this latest book, but I think I quoted it somewhere, when he said that one of the most wonderful things in life and in his life was to participate in a demonstration.
2: In a political
1: demonstration, Uh in a good cause. That's good. I don't quite remember how Mm -hmm. he put it. And I remember actually, now here is another parallel that the American spy, Noel, Noel, what's his last name? Don't know. You know, the guy who was involved in he ended his life in Hungary hmm he had a quaker background his first thing yeah know. yeah but again he also made this point he went to one demonstration against unemployment uh-huh. and what a great emotional experience yeah. that was uh-huh. Uh-huh. so we and, and then he became a Soviet spy
2: mm-hmm
1: yeah. was, I, I mentioned him in this book because mm-hmm. it's one of the most remarkable cases he was a total idealist with a quaker background and then soviet spy and then he was arrested in Czechoslovakia and involved in a short trial in Hungary mm-hmm. as a kind of background. He never brought to the court, but they used him to to uh, uh, to, to discredit some other people, mm-hmm. you know. It was a complete travesty. <laughs> and then he was rehabilitated and decided to stay in Hungary
2: mm-hmm.
1: as mm-hmm. a communist. Yeah. Wow. And just an amazing story. That, that's in the book discussed at some... Uh, at some Length. Mm-hmm. Well, Paul, we've, um, Yeah. That's, I was
0: going to no. say, we've almost had a time here, I don't want to take too much of your time off. We've taken a lot of it. Um, could you ask the tr- answer the traditional final question that we have on the New Wix Network, and that is, what, what are you working on now? Do you have a project?
1: I do have a project, although I am working on it at a very low rate, <laughs>
0: but
1: I think it's a fairly good project. I am interested in comparing personifications of evil or the political enemy in three uh, systems or political movements uh, the, the nazis and the jews
2: mm-hmm. the
1: communist systems and and the class enemy or the capitalist mm-hmm. and then the radical islam and the infidel
2: That's interesting, and yeah.
1: i'm interested in how these three types of person personification of evil are presented the uh-huh. specific details
2: uh-huh. Uh-huh. of the
1: types of human being which which are as I said, personifications of evil, and again, it has, of course, some kind of a religious root or Renaissance this uh-huh. belief that, uh, and of course, this has to do with the with the scapegoating impulse that people uh, very much prefer to blame their problems on on something out there, you know, not themselves, but and some,
2: how. Yeah, some, some
1: evil or injustice, and uh, well, some often they are right, and sometimes they are not. So anyway, this is what I am
0: to work well I hope you come back on the show when you're done with that book
1: yeah I hope I will be long enough to do it I'm sure yeah.
0: you will so anyway let me tell everyone we've been talking with Paul Hollander about his book from Benito Mussolini to Hugo Chavez intellectuals and a century of political hero worship it's a great book I hope you go buy it Paul thank you for being on the show
1: you are very welcome I enjoyed talking to you
0: thank you and let me say to everyone to listen to this podcast we appreciate your patronage very much and we will talk to you soon Thank you.